0: are here. Um, we are coming to the conclusion of what's been kind of an epic series. We call it poll. We've been talking faith, politics, the future of America. Hard to believe in a few weeks we're going to elect, uh, you know, the next president. It may be a re-election. It may be a, a brand new uh, leader. How many of you actually watched the debates? You, you, you saw part of the debate. Okay, very in- interesting, right? Okay, don't. Ah, uh, easy. Uh, <laughs> certainly two very different types of leadership. Uh, being offered in the way that uh, steering our nation forward during turbulent times. How many of you, just quick survey, how many of you already know who you're going to vote for? You already know who you're going to vote for. Okay, don't call it out. Don't call it out. Just relax, okay? Uh, the, the, the goal. I'm not going to ask you because the goal of this series has not been to tell you, um, you know, what to think or who to vote for. Rather, how to think biblically about the issues that are facing our nation because if you learn to think biblically. If you elevate your, your sight to the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter who's running. It doesn't matter what the issues are at hand. You can actually know how to vote, how to offer your support in a way that is biblical rather than just culturally, um, you know, relative. So in, in my heart, honestly, um, that's that's part of our duty as Christians. I want you to hear that. You do need to vote and, and think critically about leadership specifically The kind of leadership that God honors at this pivotal moment in our nation's history. Um, If there's one word that I think characterizes this particular cultural moment. In other words, the single distinguishing mark that most Americans are feeling, it would be the word anxiety. Um, There's a lot of economic anxiety. Uh, unemployment is now between 7 and like 11%, depending on whose statistics you believe. Um, it's probably likely higher because so many people who've been unemployed for a long time have just dropped out. They've stopped looking for work. There's anxiety about uh, you know, the, the best jobs being outsourced overseas, uh, an economy that's been very slow to recover. A lot of people think is the recession kind of the new normal. Um, investors very skittish as they see the dominoes kind of falling, particularly in Europe, Portugal, uh, you know, Portugal, Ireland, you know, Greece, Spain, Italy. It's like what what shoe is going to drop next? So people feeling financial anxiety. But watch, it affects young and old. There's a generational anxiety that's very palpable. Particularly talking with many of you, a lot of young people who are just graduating. They're like, "Wow, the worst job market in you know a decade." Um, it, it, they're carrying student loans. A lot of young people feel generational anxiety. Um, it may, they may, some, what One student was saying to me, I get to be born in the generation that for the first time may not actually have a higher standard of living than my parents. And he's like, I, it's very hard for me to swallow. The older generation, seniors feeling anxiety, will Social Security be there for them? Or are their investments going to be worth anything? You add a layer on that, kind of like the national security anxiety that we're feeling right now. Our nation has a lot of fatigue after fighting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, our military is depleted, exhausted, and terror in the Middle East is actually roiling up once again, nuclear tension between Israel and Iran and this white hot American, anti-American rage. You see it in the Muslim world kind of bubbling all over. So there's this worry, this anxiety and fear that, that Americans feel their influence is kind of waning on the global stage. Are we a nation in decline? Geopolitical anxiety. And then I'll just to be honest, um, I don't know if you had your cage rattled last week by Jonathan Merritt. Uh, some of the statistics he was citing, incredibly things. There's this On the domestic front, there's a tremendous social anxiety that our values as a nation are really being redefined. He talked about the shock and two aftershocks. If you think of just the American family, this year, um, half of all babies that are born to women under the age of 30 will be born out of wedlock. So now over half of, of, uh, of children uh, this year, for uh, the first time, majority of the public supports gay marriage of some type. Um, divorce rates in, our, in the church, candidly, they are equivalent to that of secular culture. And a woman came to me last week. She was just like, Tim, this is very upsetting. She goes, you know, honestly, she goes, it makes me scared to think about and see where things are going. So maybe you think that, maybe, maybe you feel that people of faith are feeling anxious as they feel the cultural plates shifting underneath them and realizing that Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview in the Western world. It's no wonder that a lot of sociologists call this particular moment the age of anxiety, whether it's economic or generational, social, institutional anxiety. It's a challenge for whoever our next president is or whoever our next leaders are because how do you lead a nation full of anxious Americans who are desperate for kind of like you know a, a charismatic kind of you know, savior to kind of chart the way forward. This is where we're going. Here's how we're going to improve things and turn it around. The late Edwin Friedman, he is a Jewish rabbi and a family therapist, wrote a fascinating book on the subject of uh, leadership in an anxious age. And in his book, he titled it A Failure of Nerve. And um, he said basically this chronic anxiety in society today is absolutely toxic to effective leadership of any kind. Friedman wrote, Our anxious age is characterized by a devaluing and degradation of leadership. It has lowered people's pain thresholds, with the result that comfort is valued over the rewards of facing challenge. Symptoms come in fads, and cures come and go in and out of style, like clothing fashions. In other words, all this anxiety we're experiencing is producing weak and ineffective leaders at every level of society. We have weak and ineffective politicians, weak and ineffective business leaders, weak and ineffective teachers, principals, administrators, weak and effective parents. It includes all levels, okay? And, and that's not a, a blanket statement like if, you're, if you are a leader. I'm a leader. I'm a pastoral leader. And, and, and you look at the church. The church is always in turmoil. It's hemorrhaging people in the Roman Catholic Church, the mainline denominations. We're thankful to be in a part of a growing church. But I'm like, gosh, I don't want to just fall for this you know, comfort over you know, actually facing challenges head on. And so what I want to talk about today is kind of really bring us to a a boiling point and contrast for you two very well-known leaders of a nation in the Old Testament, Aaron and Moses. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel, and Moses was played by Charlton Heston. Um, You may recognize him. So turn to your Bible to Exodus 32. I want to show this to you. Um, That's where their story is found. Aaron and Moses, two leaders with two different visions of how to lead a nation in anxious times. And and what's going to happen here is you're going to connect the dots and see how this applies to our nation, but then I'm hoping it gets personal. And you see how it connects to the leadership you have in your classroom, in your family, in your ministry, or in your business. And and, and really, it's about a failure of nerve. That's that's the title of today's message. I want to give credit to Edwin Friedman and uh, Rich Nathan at the Columbus Vineyard uh, for today's message, because you're going to see how the life of Aaron just went off the rails and how this applies to our nation and then really going to challenge you to look in your own heart because this is for all of us. Exodus 32. Let's read this together, and we're going to see what spineless leadership looks like, okay? When someone fails to have the nerve to lead boldly, and uh, this is the kind of – you're also going to see this – the kind of leadership that not only blesses a nation but can actually save a nation. Watch this. Exodus 32, it says this. When the people saw Moses – was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. Now, uh, as you know, just go back to that verse, would you? Because you, people are like, What's Moses doing on the mountain? If you remember this, Charlton Heston goes up there, and what's he getting? He's getting these two stone tablets with what? The. The law, yeah, the Ten Commandments. In other words, this is the covenant law that, that is going to basically be the charter for the nation of Israel. Here's how we're going to live in relationship to God. It was like their, their, their charter or constitution. And he's going up there. Moses is talking with God. And all the people are down here, and they're like, wow, Moses is taking, where did that guy go? He's taking a long time. Now watch this. It says, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Where did this guy go? And Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, or your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, a mini cow, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord." So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings. They presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. They they put on Lady Gaga. They had a big party here. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, now watch this, go down, go down, Moses, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf." They've bowed down to it, and they sacrificed it, and they've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And just stop there. Because if you ask the question, what does a gutless leader look like? What does a leader without a spine look like? This tells you. In this incredibly vivid story of this nation in turmoil, it reveals four qualities of leaders lacking nerve. And the first is this, leaders without nerve— Pursue quick fixes. That's what you see here with Aaron. If you look again at those first two verses, it says the nation of Israel is experiencing anxiety. Why? Moses can't be found. He's up on the mountain talking to God, receiving the law and this charter for the Hebrew nation, but he's taken a long time. You see that in verse one? Moses was so long that people go, We don't know what happened to that guy. We're out here in the desert wandering around doing circles. Does this look familiar to anybody? We're out in this economic wilderness right now. Where's the guy who's going to lead us out of this? We need some direction. Where is he? we got to elect somebody. That national anxiety that they are feeling because they are rudderless. And uh, honestly, um, societies that are anxious typically get very impatient and as a result pursue quick fixes. That happens in nations. It happens in families. It happens in jobs. Edwin Friedman says in A Failure of Nerve, he says, The amount of chronic anxiety in a family is inversely proportional to its ability to endure pain. In other words, what makes the chronically anxious family uh, their anxiety chronic is not the pain, but the way that you deal with pain. In other words, you'll seek out professionals and leaders who offer you the most comfort, um, who will help them avoid or reduce pain as quickly as possible, not leaders who would encourage them to endure their pain in order to move steadfastly towards higher goals. This quick-fix attitude, therefore, will affect their choice of physicians, therapists, ministers, and politicians as they're drawn to the snake oil of quick-fix elixirs that masquerade as technical solutions. For me, it's been amazing to watch this election season and the number of politicians who are stepping into this vacuum and offering quick fixes to our nation's ailments. All our country needs is... The 999 plan, that's all we're, gonna, and all we're gonna turn it around. All we need to do is repeal healthcare. All we need is more tax cuts. Uh, how do you stimulate the national economy? Hey, just release the new iPhone. If you could all buy iPhones, uh, that'll get our nation back on track and kind of you know, bump up the Dow Jones. In an age of anxiety, leaders who promote quick fixes step into a vacuum and offer these soundbite solutions that understand this, address the symptoms but a fail to attack the core issues. Friedman says it's the same thing in families. Families that are in turmoil or pain typically attack the issues. Oh, our marriage is in trouble, Pastor Tim, can I talk to you real quick? Yeah, tell me what's going on. Well, I only have 19 minutes. I just got to let you know right now. And like wave your magic wand and help fix this thing. The nation of Israel, well, we don't, don't want to laugh, okay, because that, we all feel this at some level. I feel that as parents. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the nation of Israel is feeling anxious, their leader, Moses, has disappeared. He's MIA. They don't know where when he's going to return. They're out in the wilderness, and they're like, Aaron, we need a quick fix. Can you help us? And this is amazing because in verse 8, it says, God says, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of what? A calf. And I just want to, <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I got to. Can we hear it for the service programming department? Wow, that's amazing. That is something else right there. A golden pinata. Just kind of bringing the Bible to life. And uh, it's amazing because uh, they bring all their bling. They take off their earrings and watches and give them to Aaron, I guess like he's a televangelist. And he's like, I'm going to make this kind of idol that says, They've bowed down to this golden calf and they sacrificed to it, and they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. In other words, rather than enduring pain for a season, rather than saying, we are in a difficult spot right here, but we're going to hold fast to the Lord and believe he's going to intervene, we would prefer a glistening, golden, quick fix. Aaron, we need something tangible, and we need it now. Give us some idols. And again, you can judge Israel, but the truth is we say this on a micro level. You know, well, I, I'm in turmoil and I can't hold God, but I can hold a woman. Or I can't hold God, but at least I can be in the arms of some guy. Doctor, do you have a pill for my, that's going to help me with my kids who are off the rails? Mr. President, can you wave the magic wand and in six months turn our country all the way around and back on track? That's what we, that's what we ask for, and that's why politicians are kind of like, okay, let me just tell you how we're just going to magically do this. A lot of you are leaders in this room, okay? Some of you are teachers. Many of you, corporate, uh, you know, corporate leaders, executives in the boardroom, or you lead a ministry team. Maybe you're a parent. You're a leader at home. Do you notice this quick-fix mentality from people who approach you for help? My kid, you know, he, he can't read, you know, on a, on a fourth-grade level, and he's in eighth grade. I'm, just, I'm saying this fictitiously. It's not my kid. I don't have a kid in eighth grade. But there's this gap, and when I was teaching, it was always like, you know, could you work with him maybe ten minutes after school and just kind of all of a sudden magically he's going to read, you know? Like, like, like the, the, the leaders without nerve they cater to this quick-fix mentality that's demanded by anxious people who are scared, quality number one. Quality number two is that leaders without nerve are world-class people pleasers. Look at Aaron. Aaron says, would you take off your earrings and, and, and give them to me, and they bring them, and he, and he, and he melts it down into this, this, this you know, small little cow god, and he gives in to the demands of the people. And I know this is going to sound like heresy, because you know, we're, you're, you know Americans value democracy, right? It's the people's voice that should rule the day. But the truth is this. The people are not always right. Did you know that? Can we just acknowledge that? The public doesn't always know what's best. <laughs> in fact, a lot of times we want to have our cake and eat it too. And leaders without nerve are leaders without backbone who constantly capitulate to the cries of the crowd. Well, what do the people want? What do the focus groups say? What are people saying? What will poll well? And they give in to the pressure... Of the people who they're called to lead. This is from both parties. And the truth is this, guys. You want the truth? What America needs most right now is political leaders who will not give in to the demands of people for more services that nobody's willing to pay for. What American schools need right now are are superintendents and principals and teachers and professors who will not give in to the demands of parents and students for higher grades without any corresponding performance. What the American workplace needs right now is employers and supervisors with the backbone to hold employees accountable for their performance. And as a parent, what American families need right now is parents who aren't going to get pushed around by the demands of their kids for more stuff and constant entertainment. I'm bored. We leave leaders with nerve, is what our country needs. Leaders who will actually stand up to unhealthy, immature people with their ridiculous demands and say, no, no, we're not going to build a golden cow. No, we can't afford that. No, that's not going to win. You can pout and you can sulk. I see this in the parent world. I see a lot of uh, parents, and and, uh, I fight this myself. I'm not blaming anybody. But moms and dads who are held hostage by their three-year-old little dictator. Constantly whining and demanding and tantrums and a 13-year-old, you know, mini Hitler who's like, I hate you. You know, I'm going to threaten. I'm going to pout because, because our anxious age, mark this, produces nice parents but not courageous parents. And we need courageous parents. If you were a counselor or a therapist, you'd say, we've produced a nation of codependent enablers. That's a fancy term. For nice people who are unwilling to speak the truth and challenge the rudest, most stubborn, and aggressive behavior in other people. Again, at election time, we are just simply seeing the symptoms of this in our national dialogue. Because there's a failure of nerve in our political leaders from both parties who will never tell the truth to the American people about our obvious problems, the root issues. you notice that? No one ever actually wants to talk about it. Because you want truth, like, Can you imagine if someone opened the debates, hey, open the debates, give us your opening statement, he said, uh, here's the truth, we cannot spend like socialists and tax ourselves like libertarians. Crickets, crickets, just like that. Here's the truth, hey, American people, our social security system is broken. Medicare is broken. Our whole political system, actually, with its focus on lobbying and fundraising is broken. If any politician, would you, would he, he would never get to the debates. You'd never elect him. <laughs> because if any politician dared wander off the reservation of the talking points and tell the truth, he'd never be elected. Our leaders today lack the nerve that they literally can't take the heat that would come from being unpopular in the public eye. And you know what? The Bible has a phrase for this, lack of nerve. The Bible calls it fear of man. Fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is, keep, is kept safe. The fear of man is simply people-pleasing, and that's what Aaron was. Aaron was a world-class people-pleaser. Uh, I see the nation is kind of out there in the wilderness. Nobody's stepping up. I'll do it. What do you guys want? You guys want a golden calf? Yeah, sure. No problem. Here you go, guy. Before Aaron made an idol of the golden calf, he made an idol in his heart of the people and their demands. The people were ruling Aaron, not God. And oftentimes, we will look to people to rule us, not God himself. People. People tell you what to do, what to think, what to feel, how to dress, and what to laugh at. Peer pressure is what you'd call it if you were in high school, but basically, it's fear of man. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And the truth is, unless you are living in fear of physical or emotional abuse, if you can't say no to someone's demands, however unreasonable, you have made an idol out of that person. You ever see that cartoon? It shows two guys talking, and one of them has a Bible, and he's like witnessing to another guy, and he says, uh, God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. So many of us have people in our lives who have plans for our lives, and we fear their opinion more than we fear God's. The people in your family have a plan for your life that may have nothing to do with what God's plan is for you. Your friends, your employers may have a plan for your life that has nothing to do with God's plan for you. So might your boyfriend or girlfriend. So let me just ask you this personal question. Are are, are you somebody who lives with a constant desire for people's approval? Is Is there something in your life, someone in your life, and whose opinion of what you do or or what what you should do is more important to you than God's. Have you been following someone else's plan for your life instead of God's plan? Because mark this, becoming obsessed with what people think of you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks of you. See, if you're a follower of Christ and you are a people pleaser, you will inevitably compromise your witness for Christ. Because you'll be scared to talk about Jesus. You'll be like, I don't know. They'll think I'm nutty at the office. You know, if I, you know, <laughs> you know if, I, if I pray in school, if I just, you know, no, no, no. you won't do it because you're a people pleaser. Aaron was a world-class people pleaser. By contrast, Moses was a leader with nerve who didn't seek to please people because he was so obsessed with pleasing God. Look at me with Exodus 32, verse 15. It says, Moses turned And went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, Oh, there's the sound of war in the camp. Now, now, this is kind of funny. It says, Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing I hear. So I want you just to imagine this. Moses, right, he's got his staff. Charlton Heston has his staff. (laughs) Uh, and he comes down from the mountain. He's got the, the, the tablets in his hands and everything. He's like, wait, what's, what's going on here? Because he hears all this noise and everything. He's like, pff, pff, pff. And, and Aaron is like, oh, I think maybe the people are getting ready for a war or something like that. And he's doing a little dance, so Moses can't see. And Moses is like, no, is that, are they playing Jay-Z? What is that? Uh, I, I, they're, they're having a part. What are they doing? I hear singing. What's going on here? And this is what's amazing. It says, when Moses approached the camp. And he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. <laughs> Who's voting for Moses? Right? Right? He walks into the camp, and he sees, he's like, what is this? This idol that that, that Aaron and the people made? He sees them eating and drinking. The way it says is indulging in revelry. By the way, that's totally using polite language. That's like PG language. Almost all Old Testament commentators agree indulging in revelry simply means they were doing pagan fertility rites. It was a giant national orgy. That's what was happening here. And it made Moses furious. Verse 19 says, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain now we all remember when charlton heston throws down the 10 commandments that's why they're they're fractured but you don't understand how scandalous this would have been could you imagine the shock it would be the equivalent for us as americans if our next president walked up to his first state of the union address And he said, American people, I have some difficult news to let you know. But our nation is completely out of control. The very founding documents, the charter of God that he gave us to live by is a joke. You've made a joke of it as a nation. We've been completely living apart from God. Here's the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't count anymore. Our Constitution, whatever. That's how God feels. Yeah. Some of you are like, is he serious? Sort of. (laughs) And Moses doesn't just smash the constitution of Israel. Then he sees the golden calf. He says, you've traded faith in God for this thing. over here. Some of you thought there'd be candy coming out. It's cause you're American. I'm serious, man. Moses goes destructo. And the people are like, what is happening? Because Moses was a leader with nerve. Moses had the batteries to tell the people the truth about their sin. He called them out. And he doesn't just smash the golden calf. Do you see what it says here? He took the calf they'd made and he burned it in the fire. Then it says he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and said, drink this. Here's your milkshake. We talk about extreme measures. And honestly, when I read this, I was like, now, why did Moses make them drink it? Like, you know, why, you want to think about that for a minute? Like, Why? Um, one writer said, "Because if he just mixed the gold into the water, you can be sure the next morning the Israelites would be panning for gold." You know, he just got that back there. <laughs> but Rich Nathan says that Moses most likely made them drink it, so that the, after the gold passed through their digestive system, eh, it would be defiled, it would be mixed with excrement, and they would never be tempted to touch it again. Friends, is there any object in your life right now that needs that kind of ruthless destruction? so that you will never be tempted to go near it again? Is it a credit card that needs to be cut up? Because you're like, I'm in debt, I'm stretched. I, you know, I, hope. Oh, please, I hope somebody can turn the economy around. Maybe you need to turn the economy around and go visa, all right? What is it in your life? Is there a relationship that needs to be ended? A lot of times I talk with people, and it's so obvious what the issue is, that this is an abusive or manipulative relationship, and it's like, can you, Pastor Tim, can you help me so we can get back to good? I'm like, this needs to end. Oh, I don't really want to hear this. Bye. I'll try another church. (laughs) Oh, now I'm telling the truth. Watch out, watch out. Is there a drug or alcohol or prescription dependency that you need to radically uproot because Moses lets the people just run willy nilly? Whereas Moses, Aaron does that. Moses says, I love you enough that I'm going to confront you and I'm going to hold you responsible for your sin. Because Moses had backbone. And there are no great leaders without backbone and without nerve. There are no great leaders without truth-telling and without the courage to actually confront people. Great leaders don't tell a nation what they simply want to hear. Great leaders tell them what God needs them to hear. Leaders without nerve pursue quick fixes. They're people-pleasers, and catch this. Number three, leaders without nerve blame-shift. They don't take responsibility. Instead, they pass the buck and they blame somebody else for the mess that they have. Look at verse 21 here. It says, Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Now watch this. I love Aaron. Uh, don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how, how prone these people are to evil. They're from the Jersey Shore. They are just like, they're just like, I just. They said to me, uh, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, this is the greatest, whoever has any gold, Julie, really take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I don't, that was the craziest thing. I just, I had to, how did it happen? Leaders without nerve, blame shift. See, when Aaron is confronted, he won't come clean. He doesn't actually say, you know what? I did it. This is my bonehead idea. I don't know. People just started giving me their their watches there. Now, jump this calf, who knows? I don't, guys, our capacity for rationalization is amazing. It's not Israel, it's not American, it's human nature. Aaron smelted the metal, he took a tool, and he fashioned the calf, and it just happened. Before we get too upset about Aaron, understand, guys, we blame shift as Americans, as a nation. Right now, you know, the big question, right, who's responsible for the economic mess we're in? If you listen to the debates, it goes like this. Well, I inherited this from a previous administration? It's not my issue? Or, what do you think? Well, actually, this mess is a uh, result of the uh, current liberal uh, administration, and uh, you'll have four more years of of this mess if you, you... why does nobody have the batteries to stand up and say, guys, I'm the problem? We, I voted uh, for two wars, tax cuts, and health care for everybody. We want guns and butter, and then we want to go shopping at the mall to show our support and spend ourselves into oblivion. How did our nation get in this debt? I don't know. It just, it just started. It just happened. I don't know. <laughs> Oof. This is a distinctly human sin issue problem facing our nation. We can't tell the truth, so we blame shift. You see this at the highest levels of government, but it goes down to our personal lives, doesn't it? As a pastor, um, one of my greatest privileges is coming alongside people who are in crisis, families that are, uh, uh, have issues or couples who are in trouble. Um, too many times in talking with couples who've had you know, infidelities of that, and in most cases, when I meet with those involved, um, I meet with a lot of errands because they may acknowledge their sin like, I, I shouldn't have done this and went off the rails, but Pastor Tim, you need to understand the pressure that I was under. Or you, you, before you go judging me, you need to understand what he did to me. Or I don't know what happened. You know, we just like met for drinks, and then we just went out, and I jumped this calf. I don't know. We just. <laughs> and there was one woman I met with who made such an imprint on me because it was so refreshing. She actually said, Pastor Tim, um, I have no one actually to blame for this than myself. She goes, I'm not even going to tell you what my husband did. The truth is I was playing fast and loose with God and coming to church on Sunday and playing this whole, like, Christian game, but you know what? I got caught, and it's my fault, and I'm the one to blame. There's no one but me. It was so unusual. I can count on one hand the amount of people who take ownership and responsibility for their sin. Aaron won't own the crisis that he helped create, because he's a leader without nerve. So let me ask you, As you look at the problems in your family, are you willing to actually look inside yourself and you say, you know what, a lot of this stuff is mine. I've made some stupid choices. I've said some hurtful words. My spending, my drinking, my temper, my selfishness, my criticism is causing part of this problem. Honestly, guys, if we could have the guts to say that we have no guts at times... (laughs) That's my lack of backbone. It's my lack of confidence that has kept me from confronting this root issue in my family or my life. And you know what? I'm not going to shift the blame to another person. I'm going to take the responsibility. I'm going to tell the truth. And then I'm going to turn to God for the solution. Aaron fails this test, but Moses rises to the occasion. Moses is a transcendent leader with nerve. Because he doesn't just stomp on the people when they're down. Oh, you awful... He stands with them, and then he pleads with them and prays for his nation. Look at verse 9 here in Exodus 32. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. I love that, stiff-necked. Sounds southern. They're a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Now leave me alone, God says. He's ticked, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. I've seen the immorality. I've seen the corruption. I've seen the materialism. I'm going to destroy him. But Moses, I'll make you into a great nation. Whoa. Then Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power in a mighty hand? This is amazing. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them on the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn, God, turn from your fierce anger. Relent, and don't bring disaster on your people. I love them, God. Moses is praying for his nation because his heart's broken. He's like, don't destroy them, destroy me. You said you love this country. You said this nation was your people. God, please, in your anger, relent, show compassion. Moses loves them. He says, remember your servants? Remember, this is a godly country, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom you swore by yourself. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them. It'll be their inheritance forever. He's reminding God of his promises. And it says, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses repented and the Lord relented. Understand what I'm talking about here, guys. A leader is not, a leader with nerve is not some cold-hearted, brutal dictator. That's a bully. That's not a leader. I'm not talking about somebody who intimidates others or, you know, kicks them, makes them feel bad. You shouldn't have done this, man. God's going to deal with you, man. That's not what a leadership is. Aaron blames the people. We see Moses pleading for his people. He's heartbroken over what's happened to his nation. And honestly, I I, I can't believe this, but he refuses to throw them under the bus. God offers him the opportunity. Did you see this in verse 10? Now leave me alone so that I may destroy them, and then I'll make you into a great nation. I I can do my will without these people. I'll just do it through you. But Moses doesn't bite because he doesn't want to just be a great leader. He wants to be a leader with nerve who's not focused on personal advancement That's a self-centered, narcissistic human leader. Instead of throwing the people under the bus for their sin, Moses stands with the people and he prays for the nation. Friends, let me say this as clearly as possible. You and I only have the right to correct people with the boldness of Moses once we've prayed the prayers of Moses. Is your heart broken about our country? Is your heart broken? Do you actually see that you're part of the problem? Guys, until we have pleaded with God to have mercy on somebody, to soften their heart, God, protect them, preserve them, Father God. I don't want your judgment to come to them. God, I want you to bless them. You've said you're compassionate and merciful, God. Have mercy, Lord, on the nation. Only then can you begin calling out a person's sins. Because if you don't, you will come across as judgmental, self-righteous, like a bully. But all of it melts away when you get together before your father and have a broken heart and you actually plead for another person. That is leadership. That is spiritual leadership. That is the kind of self-sacrificing leadership that God can bless, not just bless a nation. The kind of leadership that God can use to save a nation. See, guys, why did I choose Exodus 32 to wrap up this entire series on politics and faith and all this? Because whenever you read the Old Testament, you should always be asking yourself a question. Where's Jesus in all of this? This was not written simply as a great moral lesson for us about leadership or how to have nerve in an anxious age. It was written to point us to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5, you study the scriptures diligently. Because you think that it's in them you possess eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about who? About me. Jesus held open the Bible and he said, Moses is nothing but a foreshadow of the only one who can die for the sins of a nation. What do we discover about Jesus in Exodus 32? We learn that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was a great leader, he was a leader with nerve, he was filled with compassion. He was willing to stand with people in the middle of their sin and their mess and intercede for them. Look at this on verse 30. It says this. The next day, Moses said to the people, <laughs> I've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Look at this word atonement. You see three words in it, at-one-ment. In other words, Our sin separates us from God. Our sins as a people, our sins as a nation, it breaks the peace with God. And a sacrifice is necessary to make at-one-ment, to bring us back into harmony with our Heavenly Father. You have to have a sacrifice. And this is what Moses says. Look at this verse. Powerful. So Moses went back to the Lord. And he said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please read it together forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of this book you've written. In other words, Moses pleads with God. He says, God, if you can't save them, then destroy me instead. Make me a substitute for the whole nation. Don't judge them. Don't destroy them. Destroy me in their place. Who does this remind you of? Who is this pointing to? Only one man with the righteousness, because Moses has his own junk. Moses never got to the promised land, but only one sinless man lived the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live and then died on the cross suffering the punishment, the judgment you and I deserved and then was raised from the dead to give you new life, eternal life. And that man is Jesus Christ. Amen? This is what God says. He says, Moses is a foreshadow, but when the time is right, I'm going to send a leader who will actually die on the cross for the sins of all people. My one and only son, 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And that testimony is given in its proper time. Guys, why do we have at the center of our faith a man hanging on the cross? Because we believe it's not just a man. It is God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for you and me. He dies in our place He takes our junk and then he washes us with his blood and then he gives us his righteousness. He says, Could you be humble enough now to tell the truth, turn to God, and follow me? Moses foreshadows the way that Jesus interceded for his people. And guys, understand this. If you've never given your life to Christ, the question is who's leading your life? It's always about leadership. When we say Jesus our Lord and Savior, what we're saying is he's my leader. I follow him. I trust him. Complete confidence because he laid down his life for me. Amen? If you are a Christian, only Christ, no man, can give you the nerve and the strength that you will need to be the man or woman of God who leads your family with nerve, who leads in your school district with nerve who leads at your office with bold faith, who actually leads you boldly in ministry. Jesus is greater than Moses. That's what leadership is. It's being willing to lay down your life for the sins of a nation. And it's not just Israel. It's not just America. Jesus died for Canadians, for Australians, for Iranians, for Libyans. He bled and died as a ransom. What's Timothy say? For all people. The truth is this, guys, in the long view of history, it actually won't matter which man wins this election because only Jesus can save our nation, amen? And only Jesus can save you. That's it. Have you asked him to? That's the question I'll ask you. Have you asked Jesus to actually save you from your sins and then come into you and follow his leadership in your life? If you have not done that, guys, it's the only only election that matters. Who you elect is your savior. And I'm not being cute about that. You need to go out and vote. Don't hear this as like, oh, it's all flawed and corrupt. I'm not going to vote. You need to vote. As a Christian, it's your duty to vote. You vote your values and you think biblically about it and say, what's going to honor Christ the most? But listen, the other day, God's going to get his will done. <laughs> he's going to do it with us or he's going to do it around us in spite of us. And so what I want to do is take this time to conclude this series with a time of just personal renewal. Not just as a nation. We'll repent of our sins as a nation. But our sins as a church. Our sins as people, the people of God. And I want to give you that chance just to ask Christ to come in now in this holy moment, speak to you. He's been speaking to some of you, putting a finger on something this morning. So let's just bow our heads. Can we do that? Just take a moment. God, we're clearing space right now to speak with you. Father, I uh, I see myself in Aaron, sometimes too worried about what others think. I make all sorts of idols, God. I want to be like Moses, but I see myself in Aaron. And Father, we look at the mess that our nation is in right now and the mess that some of our families are in and some of the foolish choices we've made. But God, we believe that because of Jesus, we're not beyond hope. So we have hope, God. We're putting our faith in you this morning, God, in a new way. Lord, for men and women right now who feel that they've been torn apart from you, maybe playing and talking a good Christian game, but they are far from you, God. They're coming back to you right now. They're putting faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, you can just pray right now. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, renew me. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Be my leader of my life. I put my hope in you. I trust you. Father God, I pray right now for men and women who are making that decision. They're settling their eternity in this moment. They're putting a stake in the ground, God. Speak to them through your Holy Spirit, Father. May they feel your presence right now in this worship moment. That's you. Keep your heads bowed. That's you. Just look up. Make eye contact with me. Would you raise your hand or say hi? Just signal something. Say, man, that's me. I'm coming back to God. Praise God for you. Awesome in the back. Praise God for you, brother. Welcome to God's family. Way back there. Look at that. People stepping in the kingdom. Thank you for that. That is awesome. God, I pray for all your campuses right now. We're one church. In a thousand years, there will be no name known as Liquid. In a thousand years, there will be maybe no name known as America. There will just be the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the people he loves. So come now among your people. Thank you for going to the cross and paying the price of leadership. Thank you that your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed to forgive our sins. We receive that now as a gift from you, our Lord and Savior. We pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com